0: Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. In our previous lessons, we have talked about God's communicable attributes and God's incommunicable attributes. And this, of course, belonged to the study of theology proper, uh, the study of God. Subjects related to this, of course, are Christology, the study of Christ, uh, Pneumatology, the study of the spirit world, uh, Demonology, the study of demons, homatiology, the study of sin, soteriology, the study of salvation, and Eschatology, dealing with the last things. Our lesson this week is speaking of God as a balanced being, and we must remember that although God is loving, merciful, and faithful, yet at the same time the Bible reveals Him as just and righteous. Uh, this country's had so much of the love of God; they think God was Santa Claus sitting up in heaven waiting to kiss somebody. And this country's had so much of love they can leave John three sixteen and never blush. This country has been exposed to so much love, printed uh, and preached by lovely people who want people to love them so they can get their money, but this country has forgotten that God is just and God is holy and God is righteous, and he will not tolerate sin, never has tolerated sin, and never will tolerate sin. Uh, war is God's judgment on sin here, and hell is God's judgment on sin hereafter. God has never gone out of business in his attitude toward sin, nor will he ever. Many people today have a lopsided view of God. Some overemphasize his love and forget that he is just and holy at the same time. Now, it's the love of God that allows God to forgive sin and show mercy to a repentant sinner. But it is the holiness and justice of God that demand that sin must be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Romans 6.23 says, For the wage of sin is death. We read every transgression in the Old Testament received a just recompense of reward. And so we must get a balanced view of God. The emotions that show up in man are small, depraved counterfeits, or counterparts of an original nature that is perfect and holy and righteous, the liberal and the atheist, of course, have trouble with this because they figure this way, figuring from the depths of their depraved natures. they figure well, surely God is better than man, so if man hates uh, God is not uh, God wouldn't hold a grudge against anybody, uh, God can't hate anybody. They figure well, if uh, man can forgive an enemy, and certainly God can forgive a man anything. and this, of course, is a perverted view of the majesty of God. Every attribute in man is magnified a thousand times in the Lord. If God to be a balanced God has to have a balanced nature to have a balanced nature, uh, God Almighty has to be a perfect being. His jealousy has to be perfect, perfect. His love has to be perfect, His righteousness has to be perfect. And let us never forget then that his wrath has to be perfect. God is perfect. If God were a mere human being, he'd be completely frustrated. But God is not merely a human being. God is God, and His holiness is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. His justice is perfect, and He will not at all acquit sin, nor overlook the sins of the sinner. They have to be paid for some way, and in God's love we have Calvary as a manifestation of God's willingness to pay for man's crimes, which God does not forgive apart from substitutionary atonement. The trouble, of course, comes from trying to liken man to God and create a God after man's image or create a God after man's fanciful pagan imagination. The God of the Bible created man in his image and man fell. Therefore, man's emotions and feelings, his jealousy, his wrath, his righteousness, his justice, man's laughter, his tears, his holiness, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, are fallen counterparts. They are minimized uh, remnants of the once great and holy character of man's creator, God. So although God became man in the flesh, God in his essence is a spirit, and he is a balanced being, and all his attributes are perfect. God is not a mere human being. If God were a mere human being, you could deal with him as with another man. But God is not a mere human being. If God were a mere human being, he would be in desires with the two sides in constant conflict. However, God is not a man. Numbers says God is not a man that he should lie, and neither the Son of Man that he should repent. God is not a man, and these two opposing emotions work together in perfect harmony, for the one becomes a balance for the other. For example, for a man to argue that hell is impossible, for a loving God could not send a helpless human being there forever and ever, is an unbalanced view of God which comes from a mental sickness on your part. To argue that hell is impossible on the grounds that you don't want to believe it is nonsense. And if you continue to reject the truth of it after it's been revealed on the grounds that you don't believe or you can't prove it, only goes to prove that many of you people are mentally sick. You've never seen the backside of uh, Uranus. What does that mean? You don't know what's beyond the third heaven and the sea of glass. What does that mean? There's no man that's seen the inhabitants of the earth that uh, the Bible speaks about in the bottomless pit, about uh, 4,000 years or 4,000 miles straight under your feet. So what? To argue hell is impossible is a rather stupid argument to to start with, in view of the fact that many unsaved men have a foretaste of hell before they get there, to such an extent that they even say hell is just in your mind. To argue that hell is impossible is ridiculous, and due to the fact that Jesus Christ stated it was a fact. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who first coined the expression, Hellfire. And people who don't like Hellfire preaching have no business fooling with the Sermon on the Mount. And you have some of the wildest situations occur in America you ever heard of, where people are majoring in the Sermon on the Mount and never talking about Hellfire. They're both in the same message. To argue that hell is impossible is an unbalanced view of God. To understand the horrors of hell and the blackout at Calvary, we need to think about the holiness of God and the severity of God, God's wrath on sin. How can any of you people talk about the love of God, the love of Christ, when you read, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God and him? What do you suppose is involved in God making Jesus Christ to become the personification of sin? Love? In plain words, when we reject the doctrine of hell and the severity of God, we're unbalanced. Not the Lord. What do you suppose is involved in this statement? Christ at once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust. You call that love? What do you make of this statement? Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Would you say if God turned you into a curse, that was a manifestation of his love? No, to understand the horrors of hell and eternal punishment, you have to remember the God that reveals himself in the Word of God is a holy God. He's not like the God who reveals himself in PM, the great blank passive neuter force. He's not like the God presented by the graduates and the faculty members of the leading state universities in America, the great neuter force field or the energy field of eternal evolution. The God of the Bible reveals himself as holy, and with a severe attitude against sin. That's why many people prefer other religions. The holiness of God demands that we be holy. The law of God pronounces eternal damnation on the guilty sinner in accordance with the justice of God. And one of the great marvels of our age is that God found a way of salvation that satisfies both God's holiness and God's love. You read about this in Romans chapter 3. For how can God be just and at the same time a justifier of the sinner? The only way God can be just and holy and justify the sinner is take the sinner's place. The solution satisfies the law and leaves a man, a creature with a free will, who can either choose salvation or damnation, choose heaven or hell. All right, first of all, God is holy. You can't imagine a God who could be anything but perfect holiness. If he's not perfect holiness, he's not God. To be holy, of course, means to be free from all defilement, to be pure. Pure. God is absolutely pure. The Bible says uh, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of pure eyes, than to behold evil, and canst not look in iniquity. In Exodus 15.11, we read, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, glorious in holiness? In 1 Samuel 2.2, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. In Isaiah 6.3, the seraphim are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Simon Peter says, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, this holiness of God separates him from man. People who like to think they're all right always reject the first three chapters in Genesis. You'll find the standard operating procedure for faculty members of state schools is to pretend that from Genesis 10 onward, we're dealing with history, but from Genesis 10 backward, we're dealing with mythology. Strange, isn't it? Uh, for, of course, they're forced to admit that from Genesis 10 on is history because it is recorded history and dead men tell tales and the stones and rocks cry out. There's evidence for the flood in history. There's evidence of Ur and Lachish and Akkad, the Babylonian cities, in history. There's evidence of Abraham's dwelling place in Ur the Chaldees and the Ziggurats in Babylonia in history. Therefore, the standard way of handling the Bible by the unregenerate, fallen, depraved, Christ-rejecting, God-defying sinner is to pretend that everything from Genesis 10 on is history, but from Genesis 10 back is mythology and legend. Why? Because the first three chapters state that you're not going up, you're going down. The first three chapters teach that Darwin was a bigger monkey than he thought he was, even though he came from a monkey. The first three chapters teach that you were made in the image of God, and you are descending to the level of a beast. That's what we call negativism, I believe. And one ounce of negativism is worth a pound of positivism when it comes to dealing with the truth. And these positive thinkers, after all, are the most negative people in the world, when you get right down to it. These, the most intolerant, bigoted bunch of dogmatic, narrow minded hypocrites that ever lived, are the people that profess to be broad minded with open minds. They're the crowd. Let me tell you something, you throw that old King James Bible I and mean, you watch him clam up and have hysterics and strip their gears and burn out their clutch plate and burn the valves and throw pieces of carburetor all over the highway. There's nobody in this world more narrow-minded or intolerant than a religious liberal. Nobody. They're the people that try to get broadcast off the radio. They're the people that try to shut down the radio stations by blackmail, threatening the FCC. And they're the people that can't stand any Bible truth contrary to their own liberal upbringing. Well, in the Bible, the holiness of God separates him from fallen man. Man is a fallen creature. And only by the blood of Christ is a sinner made nigh to God, Ephesians 2.13. The only way that a man can approach a holy God is through shedding of blood, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and God is life, and God gave life to man. There isn't a heathen in the darkest parts of Africa or Asia that doesn't know without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin. You have to go to school to unlearn that basic, universal truth. God is holy in the Bible. The God of the Bible hates sin. His holy wrath will punish sin. And this explains Isaiah 53, verse 6, where the Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise Jesus Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chasten of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All right, God is holy. The God of the Bible is not the God of Buddhism and Hinduism or the gods of Hinduism. The God of the Bible is holy and doesn't tolerate sin. The God of the Bible doesn't call evil good and good evil. The God of the Bible never speaks about values, clarification, and the relative situation ethics. That's the work of the Christ rejecting hell bound, fallen Adamic nature as it seeks to set up its own standards to replace God's standards because God's standards are too high. God is holy. You so say, how in the world can I become holy like God? You can't apart from a sinless Savior who died in your place. Like the south in the world, no way, man, no way. All right, secondly, God is love. We read in 1 John 4 eight, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This is not only a verb saying that God loves, but a noun, for God is love. If God lives in a person's heart by conversion, then they must love him, for he is indwelt by love. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now, what is love? Well, out there in the magazine rack, love is fornication, premarital sex, perversion, bestiality, and adultery, or adult consent in adultery. Whether by when the newsstand speaks of love and somebody's love affair and somebody's romance, they're talking about fornication and adultery. You're living in a day and age that never tells it like it is. It professes to be in the most plain and frank and open age that ever lived. It is the most deceitful, hypocritical, varnished, (coughs) cheneered, veneered, shellacked age that ever lived. What is love? Well, folks talk about falling in love. That's covetousness or emotional upset. Folks talk about making love, meaning fornication or adultery or legitimate married situation or relationship. Of course, this isn't love. Love is a desire for and a delight in the welfare of the one on whom the love is bestowed. Love is giving. True love even loves sinners and enemies. Matthew 5:44. And if you love those that love you, what thank can ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? A hippie that loves the hippie, groupie, moony, and the, and the communists, and the communists, and hates the establishment, is a rascal. Christ said, love your enemies, pray for them, but despitefully use you. Bless and curse not. If all you can love is the folks that are in agreement with you, you ain't worth shooting. Love is a desire for and delight in the welfare of the one in whom the love is bestowed. If you love somebody, you want to give things to them. Do you love God? If you love somebody, you like to spend time with them. Do you love God? I didn't ask you if you put up with him as a boarder or a dictator... Or paid him weekly as a landlord over your rent. If you love somebody, you want to talk with them. Do you love God? If you love somebody, you take sides with them against their enemies. Do you love God? If you love somebody, you hesitate to think evil of them and always think the best of them. Do you love God? The love of God is manifested toward the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believers in particular. The Bible says of the unbeliever in John 3.36, He that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Bible says about the religious man who is counting on his religion and his sacraments to save him, he is alone in the world, dead in trespass and sin, alone in the world, without hope, without God, and is by nature, by birth, a child of wrath. Now, how's that for a negative picture of mankind? You know, you don't read through the Bible very far before you see why it's not, permitted in a college curriculum except as dead history and poetic beauty. You don't have to read the Bible very far before you find out why men cease to study the great doctrines and truths of the Bible and believe them. You don't have to read a great deal of the Bible to see why many people pr- prefer Hinduism, Buddhism, Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, uh, Ramakrisha, Abaguru, Chela Hababubu, somebody that won't rock the boat. In the Bible, if you have never been born again by the Spirit of God, apart from your religion and your sacraments and the rest of your nonsense, you're dead in trespass and sin, you're going to hell. So I don't like that. Don't get mad at me. Turn off your head instead of the radio. Get mad with God. Pull up the Lord in heaven and say, Look here, I don't like your book. I don't believe your book. I know I'm better than that. What right have you to talk me that way? Look who I am. And then someday the undertaker to put you to bed with a shovel and you'll find out who you are. You say, why is it necessary to talk this way? Because this country is so saturated with Hollywood love and National Observer Inquirer Midnight Love that the average person in America, when he talks about love, is talking through his stack. The Bible says in John 16, For the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me and believe that I came out from God. God so loved the world, past tense, that he gave his only begotten Son, past tense, this caused God to think of a plan of salvation to give men the opportunity to escape wrath and damnation. And God, as a loving Father, manifests His love to the Christian by chastening. Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Then love in the Bible is defined as giving. God so loved the world He gave. And it is very possible for you to give without loving. But you cannot love without giving. And in every love affair in the face of this earth, there's an element of selfishness on the part of one or both parties. There are no love affairs on this earth. I don't care whether you've got Grace and the Gambler or Wally and the Duke or who's jacking on a marry X, and who cares. You haven't got one love affair in the face of this earth where somebody isn't trying to get something for themselves. And this means simply this. This means that if you miss the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, as your personal Savior, you have missed the greatest love on the face of this earth. Christ loved you enough to die for your sins. And you have no other friend who'd love you like that. All right, finally, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom we were called into his fellowship, he says in 1 Corinthians 1 9. Deuteronomy 7 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. Now, this word faithful means somebody who can be safely trusted who is reliable and dependable. God is faithful, for He is honest, and He never changes. His faithfulness reaches under the clouds. Psalm 36, 5. All of His works are done in faithfulness, David says in Psalm 33, verse 4. God's faithfulness is manifested in keeping His promises and fulfilling every word that He has spoken. God is unchangeable, for as Balaam said back in Numbers, God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of man that He should repent. Has He said, and shall He not do it? Or hath He spoken And shall he not make it good? Yes, he will. God will keep every promise to protect, assist, and guide his child in need. And some of the greatest promises of the Word of God are held out to the believer. So great, they are called exceeding great and precious promises by Simon Peter. I'll only quote a few of them, that you can see by the uh, checkbook the Lord has given you to fill out your checks with, that a believer in Jesus Christ who has been born again has access to riches that no one save man has access to, no matter how high, how high he is in his religiosity. Check number one, my God shall supply all your need through his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Check number two, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Check number three, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Check number four, the Lord is faithful so I may boldly say the Lord is my helper, I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. Check number five, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in every good thing may abound every good work. Check number six, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, check number seven, the capstone, I mean the lodestone, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the call according to his purpose. If we believe not, yet he abides faithfully, cannot deny himself. And Paul says, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. So God is a balanced being. We've talked in this broadcast about God's holiness, God's faithfulness, and God's love. On our next broadcast on the Theological Seminar of the Year and discussing the nature of God, we're going to talk about God being merciful and God being just and draw a conclusion in regard to these great passages of Scripture. We trust today's lesson has given you some light on the nature of God and has equipped you to understand the Lord a little bit better and perhaps His Word a little bit better and take the same balanced view of God that God presents of Himself in His holy book. May the Lord bless you and good day.